Hello and uh, welcome to the second talk in uh, Preaching to the Heart uh, series uh, where we're looking at uh, three sermons in the book of Acts called Following in the Footsteps of Failures. And our second uh, Bible reading uh, comes from Acts chapter 7. Stephen before the high priest. Acts chapter 7, I'll read again from the ESV. Chapter 7, verse 1 of Acts. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after this, his father died. God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave themselves and afflict them for 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions, and gave him favour and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan, and a great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, seventy-five persons in all. And Jacob went down to, into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up for three months in his father's house, and when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was forty years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel, and seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. 
and on the following day he appeared to them as they were quarrelling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbour thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want me to do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, and of Isaac, and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out of Egypt, the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me a slain beasts and sacrifice during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Molech and the star of your god Rephan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of wilderness in the uh, the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favour in the sight of God, and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, 
you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. How do we handle haters? How do we handle haters? I wonder if you've uh, watched uh, Car Crash TV Kitchen Nightmares. Grizzle-faced gastronaut Gordon Ramsay, uh, he uses up the planet's stockpile of swear words on a, a range of bad chefs as he tries to persuade them not to put raw pork on top of salads, not to microwave yesterday's leftovers in high-class restaurants, stuff like that. The format uh, is pretty straightforward. 16 Michelin star winning chef Gordon Ramsay, he's brought in to uh, troubleshoot a failing restaurant. Uh, for example, uh, here's one episode where Lexi, the chef's daughter, says that Gordon Ramsay is literally their last hope at saving the place. He then tries out some of their food, uh, which is usually the reason that the restaurant is in trouble. Uh, here, for example, is a picture of a, a medium rare prime fillet steak he's been offered. For those of you who are listening to the audio, let me just reassure you, it certainly does not look like medium rare prime fillet steak. It looks like someone's been sick and then burned it. <laughs> so Ramsay does his best to be shocked at the slop uh, in a different way each week. But then the real fun is seeing how chefs and owners react to his uh, F-laden truth bombs. So uh, on the screen is a picture of award-winning restaurateur Gordon Ramsay, OBE, uh, telling the chef the reason there are no customers is because the food is so bad. And the chef, with her pride, is telling Gordon Ramsay that the food is great and that award-winning chef Ramsay doesn't know what he's talking about. And you can guess what Gordon Ramsay does next. He just, he just ramps it up. He's not a diplomat. Have you ever caught someone red-handed and instead of them owning up, they doubled down? When that happened, how did you handle that? 
I won't say which church it was in uh, and I will remove any names but uh, I had this once um, an older fringe member uh, only came uh, some of the time to church one day after a fairly innocuous sermon she accosted me at the church door I need to have a word with you she said yes you made me feel really guilty about myself today okay what about I don't know came the reply I've got nothing to be guilty about but you made me feel like I really had now at this point I'm scratching my head I couldn't think what in the sermon I'd said uh, that had been particularly challenging in that direction if memory serves it was a comforting sermon um, what did I say that made you feel guilty she couldn't say but then she mentioned out of the blue and without any relevance to the sermon itself the fact that she'd been sleeping with her boyfriend for absolutely years but I don't need to feel guilty about that she demanded As I couldn't help thinking why do you feel so darn guilty about it I didn't even mention it um, perhaps the Holy Spirit's at work I, I was thinking now that thought must have been showing on my face because she doubled right down you need to apologize for making me feel guilty she said well I needed to diffuse the situation I don't like conflict uh, so I handed her a leaflet uh, that we have on the Bible's view of sex and marriage what it says about Christians um, and how they if they want to follow Jesus should handle uh, premarital sex sex outside marriage stuff like that and I said, well, why don't you have a read of that? Why don't you pray about it? And then give me a call and we can talk about it over coffee. Oh, I don't think I'm going to like this, she said. And that was the last I saw of her. When someone realises they're in the wrong, they do go one of two ways, don't they? They can repent or they can double down and dig their heels in. Say, like the chef did earlier, my cooking is great. How dare you? Um, or... My sex life is godly. How dare you? Or in the early chapters of Acts. My holiness is great. How dare you? Don't you dare try to bring Jesus' blood down on us. And by the way, no, we don't give refunds on blood money here at the temple. Now throughout Acts, uh, the uh, various leaders responsible for the death of Jesus deny their sin and compound their guilt over and over until we get to this point, the end of chapter 6, where in a rage they seize Stephen, set up false witnesses and charge him in front of the high priest. This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Now, when people get to that point, denying that their sin is wrong and turning their hurt, pride and their internal guilt against the one who is making them feel that guilt. How do we handle it? Do we Ned Flanders or Gordon Ramsay? Do we calm things down nicely or do we ramp them up? Because the question that Stephen raises for us here in Acts chapter 7 is perhaps we should be a bit Gordon Ramsay. Because 
for the sake of Jesus' honour, Stephen went on the attack. Stephen went on the attack for Jesus' honour. If you'd never seen it before, I guess you could be surprised at Stephen's response. You might even dare to say that he'd failed as a pastor. You've got pastoral breakdown here, haven't you? But Luke clearly wants us to see that Stephen got it right. Luke gives Stephen an unambiguously good report and the longest sermon in the whole book of Acts. Stephen is not to be learned against, but to be copied. And that's a real challenge uh, for those of us who want to stress only the positives of the gospel. In Kitchen Nightmares, there's a, a religious aspect to Gordon's wrath. Bad cooking is a sin in his sight. And like a prophet of old, he has to call it out whether people listen or not. And often they do not. But in his holiness for food, he must do justice. Uh, to ungodly food. So here's the question. Do we, like Stephen, feel the same way about those who refuse and hate the Lord Jesus? Do we ever go on the attack? And let me just say, this is not my natural modus operandi. This is quite against me. So I've been challenged by Stephen myself. Well, let's look at how Stephen answers the charge that Jesus is an evil person who threatens to destroy the holy place and the holy law. And let's see how Stephen turns it round to accuse the judge and the jury because of Jesus' honour. Well, let's see how he answers the charge against Jesus. Let's see how he answers the charge against Jesus. The accusation is that Stephen is wrong for quoting Jesus because first, Jesus of Nazareth said he would destroy this place, the temple, and second, that he was going to change the customs of Moses. Now, you'll know it's a misquote. Jesus said the temple would be destroyed, not that he would destroy it. And Jesus said the law would be fulfilled, not altered. But Stephen doesn't address the accusation directly. Rather, he gives them a biblical theology of rebellion. Uh, this potted history uh, seems to suggest almost in passing that they're making a big deal out of incidental things, the law and the place. So apologies if you've seen this before, but I think the argument starts and ends with a focus on where God lives, the place. We'll see hopefully on the screen uh, how this works. So uh, let's have a look. There we are. Verse 2. Back to Father Abraham, the very bedrock of Israel. Stephen says God was not in this place when he appeared to Abraham. He was first in Mesopotamia, uh, which is modern day uh, Iraq and Kuwait, broadly speaking. And then he was in Haran, which is in Turkey. And the people will end up in Egypt. Uh, then God will save, and only then, verse 7, will they come to this place. If we go to the end of the main part of the speech in verse 44, again it says, Our fathers had the tent, not the temple, incidentally, the tent in the wilderness. Then verse 45, the tent was brought through the Jordan, and it still didn't settle until, uh, in Jerusalem until the time of David, which is 300 years later. 
even then, verse 46, it was still a tent. The dwelling place in my translation is actually the same root word in Greek as tent. Skene, not topos, place. It's only verse 47 uh, where God gets a house, an oikos, and settles in that house. But even then he doesn't live there. Verse 49, heaven is my throne. What kind of house will you build for me? Or what is my topos or place of rest? In other words, even if Jesus said he'd destroy this temple, it's not blasphemy. God transcends the temple and the nation. Right in the middle of the argument, in fact, Stephen makes the point that when Moses was in Sinai in verse 33, he had to take his sandals off because that land was a holy topos, place. So what these people are doing is majoring on minors, or to quote Jesus, they're straining out gnats as they swallow camels. Well, what about the charge that Jesus is going to do away with the customs of Moses? Well, again, Stephen addresses that only in passing, and again he says it's a nonsense charge. First, because Stephen makes the subtle point over and over again that most of Israel's critical history didn't have the customs and laws. So circumcision only comes in at verse 8, and it's not Abraham, and it's Abraham's, not Moses' customs. Um, Moses' law only comes in at verse 38. And Stephen is far from dismissive of the customs. He calls them uh, living oracles in verse 38. We just saw that on the screen. Not dead customs, but the living word of God. So Stephen is not dismissive of the law, but he does point out that for most of Israel's formative times, their relationship with God was not defined by place or custom. It was about their relationship with God. And Stephen and Jesus are not dismissive of these laws and customs. They just see place and custom as part of that larger relationship with God. So Stephen does sort of answer the charge against Jesus. His defence is that the accusers are furious at Jesus over trivialities, things that are not offences, even if he did say them, which he didn't. But the bulk of what Stephen says here is not a defence, but an attack. He turns the tables. It's not Jesus, but Israel, who has the history of disobedience and blasphemy and rejecting God's mercy. There is a charge a court case to be answered, but it's by Israel. So here's the charge against Israel. The charge against Israel. Stephen brings his charge, broadly speaking, using the style of the day, telling a, a story as part of his defence. So verse 1, brothers and fathers, hear me. And then we saw the story of Abraham how it's missing both temple and custom. Then he really gets going in verse 9 to 16. He tells the story of the very first saviour prophet, Joseph. Stephen's cumulative case is that every time God has sent a prophet to save them, 
Israel has to quote Jesus beaten, treated shamefully, wounded, cast out and killed every one of them, starting with Joseph. The patriarchs, the tribes of Israel, they hated and rejected Joseph. But God raised him up as a saviour anyway when Israel was about to die in the famine. So Joseph is a prototype Messiah. He was there to rescue them from death, but he was rejected. Uh, verse uh, 17 to 23, after dealing with Joseph, uh, he then moves on to the second prophet saviour, Moses. Moses was also sent by God to rescue Israel, this time from a king who forced everyone to abort their children postpartum by exposure. Moses was likewise rescued from his affliction and sent to rescue the Israelites. But again, this saviour prophet was also rejected. Verse 27, who made you a ruler and judge over us? Verse 30 to 34, Stephen relates the story of how Moses met God on the most holy ground of Sinai. Again, not this place, not the temple. And God sent him again to rescue Israel from their affliction. So we get to verse 35 to 41. Now Stephen is really building up a head of steam. He's been pulling his punches, believe it or not, until this point, no longer. The accusers have disowned and cast out Stephen and Jesus by saying, this man, this Jesus, with a wave of the hand. But their ancestors did exactly the same with Moses. This Moses, whom they rejected. This man, this is the Moses, this is the one. As their ancestors said in verse 40, make us gods to lead us out instead of this Moses who led us out. So the, the people that Stephen is speaking to right here, they're copying their ancestors who rejected this Moses in exactly the same way as this man, this Jesus. Verse 35. This one they rejected, this man God has sent both as ruler and redeemer. Verse 35 is very messianic. It's almost like Moses has been raised from the dead. The one they rejected has become the capstone, this Moses whom they rejected. Verse 36, this man led them out, performing wonders and signs. Who does that remind you of? Wonders and signs. Then verse 37, this is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. The case is building up, but verse 39, our Fathers refused to obey him. Moses was rejected again and again. They rejected their first saviour, Joseph. Uh, now they are, well, they're two for two now, rejecting their second saviour prophet. Not once, but twice they reject their second prophet. If Gordon Ramsay uh, told you how to fix your restaurant and you tell him to go parboil his head, he's not going to stick around. And if for some reason he did stick around to, and agree to help, what would happen if you then told him a second time to uh, go away? What are you still doing here, you second-rate slop server? Well, you're done, aren't you? 
He's not going to help anymore, but he's going to abandon to you to your own fate. This is what you deserve. And so verse 42 makes perfect sense. God handed them over to their evil and their rejection. Twice they had refused Moses after such a great salvation. He says, there's your bed, now line it. And so they take up the tent of Moloch instead of the tabernacle of God. And of course, they just kept doing that throughout their history, not just with Moses, but through the kings too. From Exodus until the exile into Babylon, they take up Moloch and they take up Rephan in the Exodus and again and again and again until God sends them to Babylon. That's the strength of Stephen's argument. As you did with Joseph and Moses, so you did again and again and again. Right up until Jesus. And so we get to the end of Stephen's argument. And as we started, so we finish. Verse 44 to 50. Stephen again points out that God is not bound to this place. But now his point has added weight. After summarising the constant rebellion of Israel over the last thousand years, he says, verse 44, Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as Moses directed. And you find yourself whispering, and yet they still sinned. So if we were going to summarise Stephen's argument, I guess we'd say something like, God does not dwell in houses, was never stuck in Israel, and obsessing about places and customs it is a cover-up for the fact that Israel's history is one of rebellion and rejection. Or as Jeremiah uh, puts it, do not trust in these words, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Amend your ways and your deeds, Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 4. And so Stephen lays out his charge in full. Verse 51, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in hearts and ears, you stubborn, refusing to rethink your bad actions, spiritually dead in the heart and in the hearing, you people who reject God. Always pushing against the work of the Holy Spirit, who is convicting you even now of your sin. Verse 52, he ramps it up. Again, with a beautiful turn of phrase. Which of your prophets did your fathers not persecute? Oh, let's have a think. It's, it's so brilliant. It's, it's, a, it's fierce. It's fearless. Let's have a think. Who did? We, no. No, we persecuted them, didn't we? we what about? No, no, we, we killed him. It is so fierce. And then the most damning indictment of all. You've managed to do even worse. Your fathers only succeeded in killing those who told you about Messiah. You went the whole hog and murdered Messiah. You claim to have received and treasured the law as given by an angel, but you have literally broken commandments 1, 2, 3, 5, 6 and 9 and theologically tore through 4, 7, 8 and 10. If anyone is a blasphemous lawbreaker... It's you. Well, the result we know. Stephen joined the prophets and his saviour and was murdered like 
those before him. Yet I'm not sure that's Stephen's fault. Luke's point here is that Stephen was not only right in what he said, but he said it in the right way. This is not pastoral breakdown. This is an example to be copied. Stephen is to be copied. And for me, this raises all kinds of questions. And bear in mind, Stephen's sermon is technically an apologetic or evangelistic sermon. This is given to non-Christians, and yet he still goes out like this. So um, here's some questions for us. Would you ever preach to shame someone? Would you ever preach to shame someone? I instinctively rebel against this. I rebel against angular preachers. You know, folks who are a little bit more like Fred Phelps of the Westboro Baptist. Um, I don't like confrontation. Paul says it's a wicked person who enjoys stirring up division. But then Stephen might be a very important corrective uh, for those of us who are conflict averse. I will often preach for conversion, pray for conversion, groan and plead with the Lord for a soul I fear will spend eternity in hell otherwise. I will often preach on the glories that such people miss out on. Here's the question. Am I equally grieved by their sin? Their refusal to give my beloved Jesus, the holy righteous one of God, his right place. And I don't think I am. I wonder if sometimes I soften the blows of scripture and avoid calling out sin as being utterly sinful. Here's another question. Should all evangelism be fluffy and nice? Should it always be carrot? And how often should it be stick? If you're a preacher, uh, you might want to think about your last few evangelistic sermons or altar calls or evangelistic applications during a sermon or, or perhaps a Bible study. If uh, you're a Bible study leader, uh, were they kind and gentle and nice? Uh, when is the last time you went Gordon Ramsay? By which, I, of course, I don't mean you swore your head off at everyone. I mean, you showed them on an emotional level with your emotions, the utter sinfulness of sin. Are you prepared for people to hate you because you show them how bad they are? Again, I don't think I am. One of my uh, children uh, is uh, really getting into personality profiles and uh, loves the Myers-Briggs personality typer. And uh, I've rediscovered uh, that I'm an INFG, which is an advocate. Now, you might categorize that as the utterly petrified by disputes or hostility type. So I might say something stupid or aggressive on the spur of the moment. But I can guarantee you I lie awake and sometimes it's years later worrying about what I've said. It takes a very great deal for me to actively plan 
to upset someone or write a sermon that calls sin sinful. What about you? Are you prepared for people to hate you because you show them how bad they are? Not just because that's what might save them, but because it's the right thing to say and Jesus' honour demands it. Here's the last thing I wonder. Uh, we've all heard inspiring stories of missionaries prepared to die to save people's souls. Folks like the brilliant Jim Elliot. But what about what Stephen did? He died for God's honour. The glory and vindication of Jesus Christ in the face of liars who smeared his name. What about you? Would you say that was something worth dying for? Not someone else's soul, but Jesus Christ's glory. Let me close by praying. Lord, help us learn from the disciple Stephen, one of the great and holy preachers of your word, a great example that Luke wants to hold up for us. Father, we thank you for Stephen and we ask you to help us learn from him. Lord, where we need to preach on the utter sinfulness of sin, to challenge even non-Christians, though Paul says we do not judge those outside the church, Lord, yet we may be called to challenge them on the sinfulness of their sin. Help us to do that, Lord, with, uh, with tears. Lord, if people are going to hate us because we give them the bad news, help us be ready for that. Not rejoicing or gloating in some contrarian manner about how many people we've managed to upset. But Lord, doing it because it's the right thing. And Lord, help us be prepared both to die for people's souls, but also ready to lay down our lives because you're worth it. Lord, these are difficult things. We pray for your help and your Holy Spirit. Amen.